0: Uh, many of you know, before we get started, many of you know this, but uh, still want to uh, relay this information to uh, everybody. Uh, last Sunday night at about 1118, uh, our, one of our founding pastors, uh, the one who uh, founded East Valley Bible Church, the founder of Priority Living of Arizona, Tom Schrader, passed away from uh, multiple complications from all the different things that were afflicting him. In the end, it was uh, cancer throughout his entire body. Uh, That got him Uh, those of you that know Tom uh, a number of years ago He spent seven years with his first wife Susan going through her cancer being her primary caregiver Um, Lots and lots of hard work during that time and after that seven years was over and and Susan passed And there was sort of this release It's like his body just began to break down that seven years taking care of Susan probably aged him uh, 30 years he was only 69 when he passed away um, since the time of uh, Susan's passing, he had quadruple bypass, he had prostate cancer and surgery, he was diagnosed with lupus, um, the cancer, it just you, you just go down the list of things. Uh, in December, <clears throat> I was texting with a friend of mine who's a part of this uh, church, James Dufresne. Uh, James has known Tom for about seven years, young guy, he's known Tom uh, Tom has been very influential in his life, as he's been in mine. and I was just texting him about his latest uh, issue. He had cancer in his head, and they were doing Mohs surgery. And If you know anything about Mohs surgery, uh, this was the most unusual Mohs surgery I'd ever heard of. I've had it before, and it was fine. They, they had a three-inch in diameter hole in his head down to his skull. They couldn't even close it. Eventually, they had to fill it with shark cartilage. Anybody up for this shark cartilage thing in your life? Yeah, okay. So I was texting James and telling him about that. Listen to what James, this is so, so insightful and so profound. Continued evidence that the saints in the kingdom typically enter battered and bruised, contrary to what we want to believe in America. That is just so true. Um, But through it all, um, the grace that Tom exhibited, one of the greatest things I learned from Tom uh, was how to endure pain and suffering, not just physical, but emotional pain and suffering with tremendous grace. Uh, It is just unbelievable. Uh, A week ago, this past um, Tuesday, uh, he was getting ready to start his weekly Bible study, Priority Living Again, and he he texted and then called Tuesday night. Um, He never calls. He always texts. So I knew he he texted, and then right away he called. So I knew something was up. He said, hey, man, I just can't do Priority Living Wednesday morning. Can you do it? And I said, sure. Yeah, I, I... My deal with Tom was I'd drop just about anything to be able to take care of what he needs because of everything that he's done for me. And uh, so I went and taught, sent (coughs) him a text message Uh, afterwards, like I always do. I said, everything went fine, but you need to understand, Um, and, and I know he's a Seinfeld fan, and I'm sorry for those of you that don't know Seinfeld, but. Tom is the one who said, there is a Seinfeld moment in every person's life every single day. You just may not know it, okay? Um, anyway, I said, um, remember that episode when Jerry was dating, um, uh, oh, gee whiz, now I've, Bette Midler. Jerry was dating Bette Midler's understudy. He was dating the understudy. Um, and, and so Bette Midler was going to be in the play Rochelle, Rochelle. And, and she got run over in a softball game by George, so she couldn't do it, and so the understudy had to uh, play Bette Midler's role, and everybody was mad, okay? I said, I feel like Jerry's girlfriend when I show up to teach her Bible study, okay? <laughs> so, anyway. Um, so he texts back, and he said, thanks, I appreciate it. Uh, you need to do next week, too. And he said, and he said I've got issues. And we'll talk later. Uh, Sandy, his wife... <clears throat> Text me Thursday and said, I need you to call me, called and she said, he's having a full body scan and he's in real trouble. We don't know the extent to, of it yet. Uh, Friday, she called again and just said, um, it, it, it's pretty much over. Uh, so at, at the end, this went really fast and she said, he, he, you know, you need to come and see him and I know you usually come on Wednesdays and that should be okay, but you might consider coming this weekend. So I text and, um, on Friday night, and I said, I'll, I'm going to come sa- Sunday at 1.30, and she texts back and said, don't wait till Sunday, you need to come Saturday. So Jackie and I were able to see him um, one last time, Saturday. Just really sweet. He was sound asleep uh, when we went in. Sandy woke him up, and he recognized both Jackie and I, which was good. He said our names, and then tried to say some other things really kind of in and out. Uh, so we got to spend about 45 minutes with him. He, we sat him up, drank some water, just laying with him, praying with him, and, and all of that. And uh, so then Jamie Rasmussen, I love this, Jamie Rasmussen, the pastor from Scottsdale Bible, uh, walked in. Tom and Jamie were very, very good friends. And, uh, and so I, I squared up with Tom, and I said, Tom, Jamie's here to see you. And he looked right at me, and he said, he talks slow. Now, that's not the first thing I think of when I think of Jamie Rasmussen, <laughs> but just to the very end, Tom always had this really unique way of looking at things, and it was just perfect for like the last thing that he ever said to uh, Jackie and I, and then we got the, uh, uh, we had church last Sunday, of course, we got the text um, from uh, early Monday morning from Sandy that he passed away. Um, I know there's probably way more information than some of you want, but he, he's really that important to many people in this room, and I know that you appreciate that. Um, <clears throat> his memorial service is going to be Saturday, February 2nd, at 10 o'clock in the morning at Scottsdale Bible Church at their main campus at Miller and, and Shea. So uh, if you want to come, please, please come and uh, help us honor uh, and remember this great man. So... Uh, let me pray and we'll get into the message uh, tonight from John chapter 9. Uh, Lord God, we uh, we are so thankful for the gift of Tom, everything that he's done, and such an amazing story from where he started. Uh, God, we, all of us in one way or another, just by being in this building, uh, have a connection to his ministry. And so we thank you for that. We thank you for how you equipped him and how you gave him uh, the willingness and the courage to follow his call, no matter what it cost him. God, let that be an example to all of us. And let that be an example as well as we look at your word uh, this afternoon. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a little recommendation for this series that we're now in our second of 15 weeks, Love Walked Among Us, mostly looking at different passages from the Gospels about Jesus. Uh, little recommendation. You, you really need a Bible for this series because we are going to be deeply, just as Cody was last week, and I will be this week, deeply in the text. We're going to have the text up on the screens, that's true, but there are going to be times when the text comes off the screen and I'm going to say, now look at this verse. You've got to look at this verse to be able to understand what we're talking about here. And so it would be really helpful if you had Bibles. We have Bibles in the back that one of our <coughs> congregants provides for us. They're really nice uh, Bibles. They're the ESV that we use. You can grab one of those. They're, uh, they're near the giving boxes, rather conveniently. But at any rate, um, they're back there. Um, and you can grab one of those. You can take it home if you don't have an ESV uh, Bible. That would be uh, their gift to you. Uh, use your phones if you have... The, and everybody has the Bible on their phone if you have a connection to the internet. So uh, if you have an app or whatever, just but, but, but be ready to look at verses as we go through this. So we're looking at all of chapter 9. We just read the first seven verses. And I have a little contextual note just to think about as we get started. At the end of chapter 8 in the Gospel of John, at the end of chapter 8, Jesus had been in the temple and he had been teaching there. And what he said so riled up the professional religious people, the Jews, the professional Jews, that they gathered to stone him, to execute him at that time. Now, stoning is a way of executing somebody that you're unhappy with. Uh, they wanted to do it without a trial or anything. They felt like he had blasphemed, and that was enough for them to do that. Stoning would mean you, you, you throw him down somewhere, usually in a, in a pit or a ravine somewhere, And you don't hurl little rocks, you hurl large stones on the person until they are dead. They tried stoning Paul once, and he somehow miraculously survived it. They wanted to stone Jesus, but he somehow managed to slip away. I think this is important because if, in fact, um, there is a chronological, a a, uh, um, very distinct chronological sequence to John, the Gospel of John, that means that uh, he has just left this incident where he slips away, and he was almost stoned when he runs into the man born blind uh, between the temple and the pool of Siloam, and, and he stops to not only help this man, but then to engage in discourse. And, and I got to tell you, if somebody had just tried to kill me, I would have been a little bit too rattled to stop and help anybody, whatever their situation was on the side of the road. And I know right away, and you're right, well, you're not Jesus. Thank you, Captain Obvious. I get that. But nevertheless, it just, it just seems interesting to me that he was, he was willing to do this. So chapter 9, this is one whole, long, fascinating narrative with many twists in it about this man born blind. And, and I want to point this out as well. The Gospels, all four of them, they're substantial documents. They're not long by any stretch of the imagination. They're not brief, but they're also really not that long. They may be long compared to other books in the Bible, but they're not that long uh, in terms of, of the, the corpus of all literature, of all great literature. So, uh, even though they're substantial and they're not, but they're not that long. I want you to understand that an entire chapter of a Gospel is dedicated to this one story of the man born blind. That should raise our awareness of how significant this story is. It's, it's a pretty big deal. And yeah, we're going to go through the whole thing, take most of our time on the first seven verses, but I want us to see the whole thing. Here's the other thing. <clears throat> I've already used the longhand of this term, but for those of you that don't know this term, I use a little shorthand term. I know this is like Michael Scott. I'm ruining all the time we're saving by now explaining the term. I get that. But I, I use the term perps a lot. Capital P, small E, capital R, capital P, small S. Perps. It stands for the professional religious people. It's that whole class of people that Jesus really struggled with, that he was constantly pushing and pulling with. It's the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the members of the Sanhedrin, the scribes, the lawyers, and the priests, all those that uh, were really not happy with Jesus and his ministry and the idea of him being uh, the Messiah. So what we're going to do is we're going to read and comment as we go through this chapter. We're going to explain. We're going to set some context. We're going to make some application to us. And then at the end, we'll have some final application as well. And remember, we're really sort of comparing this this juxtaposition of of, uh, judging and compassion. So again, the first nine verses, he passed, as he passed by, he saw a man born blind, uh, a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? That's actually a common question in their context. Uh, Cody referred to this last week. Uh, Jesus answered, it was His physical sight was healed by all of this. So he's probably... This is happening somewhere between the temple and the Pool of Siloam. The Pool of Siloam was a very significant landmark in their geographical area for a number of reasons. I'm not going to talk about why. The reason it's important, though, is because you're going from the temple to the Pool of Siloam. This is a heavily trafficked area. So so think about... Um, Think about Camelback Road between 32nd Street and 16th Street. That's essentially what you're talking about. Lots and lots of traffic. Uh, People who were blind in their context had one option and one option only for vocation and income, and that would be begging. And it was humiliating, and it was looked down upon. One first-century rabbi actually wrote, Death is better than begging. Death is better than begging. But if you were disabled in some way or blind, uh, and you had to beg, you also had to be really good at it because your livelihood depended upon it, so obviously he's positioned in a place where there's going to be a lot of foot traffic. And speaking of humiliating, look how the disciples of Jesus treat this man. They treat him as an object to be talked about rather than a person to be engaged. Can you imagine sitting there You're doing your thing, and then you hear this group of people start to talk about you without even engaging you. We'd consider that somewhat well, a lot rude, right? Really problematic, but that was normal for their context. I'm not excusing it, not saying it's right, but it was normal for their context. It was normal, and it was dehumanizing, okay? And verse 2 is a much-debated theological, rabbinical question in their day. Personal sin, Cody said this last week, that great insight where he said that this widow from Nain, really a perp would walk up to her more likely than what Jesus did, and he would have asked her, what did you do wrong? Because personal sin in their context was always connected to suffering. It had to be either him or his parents who sinned. There is no other possible explanation for him being born blind and because God is getting him that's their theology in that context and here's what's really weird wonderful meaning very strong documentation to this uh, there were rabbis at this time who taught that you could sin before you were born so even if the argument could be made it wasn't his parents they could still they could still hang it on he sinned when he was in the womb he did something wrong when he was in the womb. <clears throat> he is responsible by his sin for his suffering. Now, this is really important to understand. It is true you and I suffer because of our own sin. Sin, our sin, naturally brings suffering, not by God's retribution, but simply in the nat- natural course of bad and unholy decisions. You and I are going to Struggle. We're going we're gonna to suffer because of that. But it's also true, also true, that suffering occurs because of the overall corruption of the world, because of the sin that entered the world in Genesis chapter 3. You, here you go. This is really hard. You and I often suffer just because. Because of the sin that's been imputed into this entire world, the creation, the natural order that God gave us, everything in Genesis 3. And I know we struggle with this, because how often, no matter what happens to us, no matter what our suffering is, how many of us immediately want to find someone or something to blame, usually other than ourselves? Constantly looking for blame for any suffering whatsoever. We need to understand, sometimes we just can't explain why they're suffering. We can't can't explain why Tom went through so much other than the corruption of, of sin in this, in this world. Anyway, uh, Jesus chooses not to answer the question that's asked him. Rather, he focuses on God's glory. One of the things I love about Jesus is that he would often answer not the question that was asked, but the question that should have been asked. That was kind of his M.O. It was gentle correction. Furthermore, his statement would have shocked Anyone there who heard it, they would have been shocked to hear that suffering can be used for God's glory. Suffering can be used for God's glory. Yeah, most of us don't believe it either. We, we don't get that either. We don't buy that either. But how many of us have truly seen God work in our lives when everything was just great? You see, that's, that's who God is. God always works best in situations where we least expect to find him. God specializes in impossible. And just to make sure you understand this, he's better than Tom Cruise. You need to understand that, okay? And verse 3 is a key. God has other plans. You heard me say this a million times during our Minor Prophet series. He's got a long game. He's got a different purpose. Our sense of justice as human beings is very good, but it's tainted by the corruption of our sin. We need to remember that. In verses 4 and 5, Jesus includes his disciples in this illusion. He says God, God is working, but we're called to his work as well. And he says this whole day and night thing. So what's up with this day and night that he's talking about? This plays on two levels. The primary level is that the daytime refers to Jesus's earthly ministry. As long as he is alive in his ministry mode, there, there's stuff to do. And the nighttime refers to his execution when he goes to the cross. But also, We find out later in this passage that this event takes place on the Sabbath. That's a problem for the perps. Believe it or not, when he spit on the ground and then kneaded his spit with the the dirt, when he kneaded that into the clay, that was considered work. So he was working on the Sabbath, and it freaked out the perps because he was violating the Sabbath. That makes Jesus a big sinner. But Jesus saw an urgency in healing this man so that God's glory could be shown. He'd been blind a long, long time. It's not that he wanted to get him seeing right away necessarily for him, although he was a a, a beneficiary of this, but he wanted God's glory to be shown. And he wasn't going to be able to do that at night for a variety of reasons. They didn't have street lights. They didn't have a bunch of lights. Nobody would have been able to see what was going on. He might not have been able... Well, he's God, I know. But he might not have been able to find his spit after he spit at night. It would have been too dark. God's glory would not have, uh, would not have shown as brightly. And, and he also didn't want to wait until the next day. So he had to do it on the Sabbath. He had to do it then. So he's, here you go. He's alluding... Jesus is alluding to both the need for ministry and the need for a willingness to take action in ministry. See, all of us know there's a need. The question is, are we willing to act? Uh, And that doesn't mean that we have to do everything that comes into our path. But I love what Andy Stanley says about this. Stanley is a pastor of a church of about 30,000 people. Some of you listen to his podcast. And, And I love this. He says, look, I can't do everything that comes there's no way he could do everything that comes in his path. But he says this, he says, I try to do for one what I wish I could do for everybody. So he's even in that serving mode as well. And then verses 6 and 7, don't get riled, but here you go. I think verses 6 and 7 demonstrate the, limitation, the limit, limitations of that wonderful what-would-Jesus-do movement. Remember that movement with the T-shirts and the bracelets? Okay, because if you run across somebody who's blind, are you going to spit on the ground and place mud on their eyes and have them be healed? Is that what, is that what you're going to do? Okay, so here's, here's the question. It's not what would Jesus do? Well, he'd spit on the ground and make mud. But rather, what would Jesus have you do? Because we're not Jesus. Verses 8 through 12, the neighbors and those who had seen him before, the blind man, as a beggar, were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes open? And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes, and he said to me, go to Siloam and wash So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? And he said, I don't know. Just watch the progression of this paragraph. Watch how the work of God, this is really important, elicits all these different reactions. The work of God elicits belief, some believe. It also elicits doubt, scoffing, mocking, and an attempt to explain it away. And it also causes disorientation and conflict. And all of that is true today. The work of God is going to, is going to cause all of those reactions from, from different people. We just need to remember that and accept that. Verses 13 through 17. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Uh-oh. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. The professional, the perps were having division. I love this stuff. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, He's a prophet. They keep asking him, and they're not satisfied with the answer. So he's, okay, you're not satisfied with the fact that he healed me. Maybe he's a prophet. So he keeps going where, he keeps trying to insert in areas where he could just get these guys to leave him alone. So this is a violation of the Sabbath. It's probably religiously unclean, too. You've got spit and dirt. So that's probably, you know, that's bothering the the perps as well. And yet, think about Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, where it says that, human beings came from dust, and to dust we shall return. There are illusions, I think, of the creation narrative in this. And of course, Jesus is all about the creation narrative. But look at verse 16. You see the conundrum in verse 16. This is the point of the confusion, the disorientation, and the division. He can't be from God because he healed on the Sabbath, thus making him a sinner. Yeah. Yeah. But if he's a sinner, how could he do such a miracle? Have you ever experienced cognitive dissonance? You hear two contradicting facts. They both must be true, but they both can't be true. That creates disorientation, so they're all upset. But here's something I think is interesting. Consider this. This guy Known throughout the community, born blind, been blind for decades, okay, he can now see isn't there something missing from this narrative didn't why didn't anybody congratulate him John does not record one person one person walking up in the middle of all this, going, "Hey, by the way, it's really cool that you can see again. Good job, there you go yeah. there's no celebration there's no acknowledgement that His life has been changed, dramatically transformed. The problem is that their religion refused to allow celebration. That's really sad, isn't it? Because their religion is not about the love, grace, and mercy of of God, but it's about their power. That's why they couldn't allow celebration. Religion always eventually creates division. We need to understand that. Jesus didn't come to create Division, but rather he came to create relationship and unity. And and he calls for faith. Verses 18 through 23. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. They're spending a lot of time on this, aren't they? Okay, And asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, and this is a little weird what happens with the parents. His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. Then you get a little internal Bible commentary here. I love this because you don't have to study anything. The Bible just tells you what's going on. Verse 22. His parents said these things because they feared... For the Jews, for the Jews already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he's of age, ask him. Now, listen up. There is nothing wrong with checking the story. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with investigating the facts of what happened to confirm what happened. We need to do that. We need to confirm the stories. We can't just take everybody's word for things. There's nothing, to under, nothing, nothing wrong with wanting to verify testimony. But what is hard to understand, and what the problem is here, is that even when the facts are firmly established and verified by the investigation of those who don't believe, they still don't believe. They don't believe. They're doing it under this guise of saying, we want to get down to the bottom of this. We want to get down to the truth. We want to believe. But they, and they confirm it all, and they refuse to believe. Luke Simmons, our pastor at Gateway during the, the preaching collective, says, it's not so much that they can't see, but that they won't see, which is really just an iteration of what happens in the next chapter in John. John chapter 10, the perps are around Jesus again, and they're saying, show us a sign so that we can believe that you're really the son of God. And he's going, I... I just healed it blind. I, I've done everything. It doesn't matter what I show you, he says. It doesn't matter what I do. You will not believe because you will not believe. You've already decided you won't believe. There's nothing I can do. There's no answer I can give you. I can set your hair on fire by just thinking it, you still won't believe. It doesn't matter. You're never gonna believe. The great scholar Donald Guthrie calls this a common demonstration of the sheer obstinacy of unbelief. The sheer obstinacy of unbelief. Is there any chance that any of you in this room suffer from that condition? The sheer obstinacy of unbelief? And of course, the greatest irony is that the blind man now sees clearly while the perps are completely blind. Because you understand, there's two levels of sight going on here. There's physical sight and there's spiritual sight. It's the basis of Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I was blind to the truth of God, but now I see. We need to understand that Jesus' love always moves from death to life. But compassionless judgment almost always moves from life to death. That's the difference. And, of course, look at the pickle that the parents are put in. I'm like, oh, oh. Why are you talking to us? Now, we know from history at this time, and it's in the passage, there was a rule in place that anyone who believed in and followed Jesus was automatically expelled from the temple or the synagogue. They were out, expelled. And and it wasn't just that they couldn't come in. It was shunning in every part of their life. The people essentially died to everybody else, their family, their friends, their business. Uh, customers, whatever it was. And so this was a very serious issue for many people. It hampered them socially and economically. They became stigmatized. Now, the blind man had a, had a stigma in a sense as well, a social stigma, an economic stigma as well. Now his parents are dealing with it. So again, there's just this, all this shifting and maneuvering. So his parents confirm the facts of the case but then turn the disposition of the case onto their son. Let him take the fall. We don't want our social standing or our business to suffer. Uh, The New Testament scholar Andreas Kostenberger writes this. The fear of the parents of this man highlights one of the barriers to people believing today in Jesus. The fear of other people is stronger than the fear of God. You afraid of other people more than you're afraid of God? It's a mistake. Verses 24 through 29. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind, and they said to him, Give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. And he answered, Whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, though I was was blind, now I see. And they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? I love this. He answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you, why do you want to hear it again? Do you too want to become his disciples? <laughs> Just kills me. Okay. And they reviled him saying... You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. Give glory to God is not just an exhortation, but it is a command and an oath. They're saying, listen, we know what happened, although they really don't. We know what happened. Now we need you to confirm our desired version of this story. it's, It's like they've got him in the box, and he's innocent, but they're sure he's guilty. And they're going to do anything they can to, to get a confession out of him, no matter, no matter what. And again, cut them a little bit of slack, verses 25 and 26. There is a sense that these guys are just doing their job. There is a sense, they're just trying to confirm. But the problem is, is that they had already made up their minds. Their investigation was not about discovery so that they could further their understanding of the truth, but rather it was a way to try to deny it. That's all they were interested in doing. And verse 27, I love it. It's it's interesting on two points. Here's the first one. People have questions about the gospel and about Jesus, and that's fine, and those questions are legitimate. But occasionally, you'll run into somebody, I have, you'll run into somebody who used questions as their defense mechanism. They tell you that if you can answer these questions, if you can help me understand this, then, then maybe there's a chance that I'll believe. But they always have another question there's never a time when they're fully satisfied and at some point it's just logical and pragmatic even in the kingdom where you have to go okay let's just have a cookie or something because this really isn't going anywhere you've already made up your mind you will not believe because you will not believe and then the second, of course, huge point of humor, he completely backpedals, backpedals the perps with this question. A lot of the scholars claim that the audience likely roared with laughter at this point, and the perps were terribly embarrassed, because you see how angry uh, they get. Verses 28 and 29 is what we call ancient religious trash-talking. They talk trash to the man. We are disciples of Moses. You're just disciple of him. And they trash, talk trash about Jesus. They say, we don't even know where he's from. And I know some of you are like, that's... Not that insulting. It Again, in their context, that was like the worst thing that you could say to a person or about a person was, we don't even know where you're from. It's, it, it's the worst your mama joke ever in the history of the world to say so. Now, here you go. Next time next time you're in a, you're in a push and pull with somebody, here's what you got to just look at them and go, I don't even know where you're from. It's such a burn. You will win the argument right there. Drop the mic. They'll have no idea how to come. Yeah, I'm from Glendale. Exactly, that's the... Anyway, so, okay. Verses 30 to 34. Sorry, Jackie and I lived in Glendale for 13 and a half wonderful and blissful years. We like Glendale. (laughs) The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. So here he is, he just continues. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners... But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world begun has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Now now listen, it's so important, so important. I, I know I've said that seven times already. It's so important, okay? The one who has experienced the grace of God is often the better theologian than those who are trained and educated. I should get at least one little wimpy amen out of that. okay? The man formerly blind, no education whatsoever, no training whatsoever, he has an encounter with Jesus, he is now the superior scholar. I found that it's true. And by the way, here you go. I am all about education, I love education, I, 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 I love studying, I love learning. I, I'm not in education at all. I, I would like to go back to school myself someday. I love it, but you also need to understand that it is possible, that line, it is true. Some people get educated beyond their intelligence. They have all the facts, they have all the theories, but they have no wisdom and no common sense. And that's a problem. If you don't mix in some wisdom and common sense, you can, be, you can have more degrees than a thermometer and you're lost <laughs> bigger than Dallas. You need to understand. These guys are lost, bigger than Dallas. Dallas hadn't even been invented yet. And, and he makes the very point that the perps were divided over before. If he's really not from God, I wouldn't be able to see now. But I see, so it's a miracle, so he must be from God. So the perps... They just, they just cast him out. They dismiss him completely. They had no argument for him, okay? What do you do when you've been thoroughly beaten logically in an argument? You just start insulting the person. It's called ad hominem. That's what we do. That means you've lost the argument when you just have to start insulting. Well, you're just stupid. Well, you're just more immoral. You're just too simple. Okay, you've lost the argument at that point when you start criticizing the individual, okay? And, 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 and it's interesting because the perps were much more diligent to show contempt for his former condition, his physical blindness, than to celebrate his present restoration. Now, how does that apply to us? I think very strongly. You and I need to know that when we come to Jesus and we start, you know, going to Bible studies, carrying around a Bible maybe, see, this has made it very convenient to be a Christian and not have anybody know about that, okay? I got my Bible right here. Yeah, everything else is there too, so... Incognito Christians were very good at that. But sooner or later people are gonna figure it out. When you refuse to do something unethical on a deal at work or you treat people in a, in a way that the marketplace and the world doesn't treat people, they're, they're gonna figure it out. And eventually they're gonna ask you that question, okay? And you need to know that when we come to Jesus and we, we testify to Jesus, we're gonna experience the same thing, the same thing that this guy did from those for whom our faith will disorient we will experience the very same thing. You? <laughs> really? You? You found God? <laughs> I knew you when you did this and you did this. And remember that one night at the Valley Ho. <laughs> remember that? Okay? There's, you found, that's a laugh. You found God. Tom Schrader. He came to Jesus when he was 30 years old. Okay? He was in the marketplace in Phoenix for about eight years prior to that. He was a Caldwell banker. And this is nothing that Tom. This is something Tom used to tell people, so it's okay if I tell it, okay? His co-workers before he came to Christ, did anybody know what his nickname was? Baskin Robbins. Now, it's true, he loves ice cream, but that's not why they called him Baskin Robbins. They called him Baskin Robbins because they could bring to Tom any sin, and he could find 31 different ways to manifest that sin. 31 different flavors of the very same sin. They called him Baskin Robbins. Think about the dissonance that they experienced when he came to Jesus and he's like, You want to go to this Bible study with me? He got laughed at quite a bit all the time. I will tell you, because of the proximity of this church to my old, 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 old neighborhood, occasionally somebody will wander in here that I went to high school with at North High School. And and they can't handle the fact that I'm a pastor of it. They just can't handle it. They can't do it. And they they all go somewhere. They find some other church to go to. They know this is not going to be good for them. (laughs) Because They don't know me in Christ, but they knew me in me. You see? But that's the transformation that takes place. Now, just... A little heads up, I will tell you that I have found that people who graduate from Sunny Slope High School, they don't have that same problem with me. They've, they've been very nice to me. So just to uh, let you know. Okay, so where am I? All right. Um, verses 35 through 41. We're wrapping up here. Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him. So Jesus heard this. Now he goes and finds him. Okay, he wants to connect with him. And he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you believe... In the Messiah. And he answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and he, it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those uh, who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Some tough words there. 39 is the payoff. Uh, Many ancient religious uh, gurus, philosophers, uh, sages, they wrote and spoke of both moral and physical blindness, but they, they spoke especially of this idea of being morally and spiritually blind. So so the perps should have known. Their their guilt is rooted in their willing unbelief. And so willful blindness is guilty blindness. That's what Jesus is saying to them. And I I know the argument. I've heard it many times. Hey, 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 I'm not willingly turning away from God. I just don't believe. God does his thing, I do my thing, and he's fine with it. Yeah, sorry, no, he's not. He's not okay. You may be okay with it, but he's not okay with it. Paul makes this argument very clearly in the first chapter of Romans 1 when he says, you have absolutely no excuse but to see God everywhere, that he's real and that he exists, and that he has a plan and a purpose, and he has a truth and he has a a, a teaching. You need to understand that. The fact of God is simply self-evident. And, by the way, you're sitting here in church hearing his word and the testimony of his witnesses. I know you're like, somebody promised me a cheeseburger. (laughs) But you're here, you're hearing this, so the question to you is the same one that Jesus asked the man in verse 35. Do you believe? And, And let me tell you something, you may dismiss it like that. You need to understand, this is the most important, most deeply profound question anyone will ever ask you, and it matters how you answer it. It matters how you answer it. And I know it's kind of weird the way it ends. You you could ask this question legitimately. Is Jesus okay with the Pharisees being blind spiritually and therefore left out of the kingdom of God? No, he's not okay with it. You feel a butt coming, right? But there are, always has been, and always will be some hearts that will not be Penetrated. Sad as that may be, I call it spiritual Teflon. No matter what gets fired at you, bing, bing, you remain completely unfazed by it. And motivation and intent is a big part of that. The perp's questions are not rooted in curiosity, but in their fear of their loss of power that they would suffer if Jesus really is the Messiah. There is A real temptation for all of us, myself included, to stay rooted in our sin, our comfort, and our worldview, than to look at how the redemption of Jesus on the cross through his resurrection gets us out of this mess, and that is willful blindness. And there's this troubling but helpful passage in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, that a lot of people don't like, but we have to deal with it, where Jesus says something about casting pearls before swine. So... Judging and compassion. Here you go. We need to understand Jesus is not anti-judging, but rather he's anti our motivation for judging because most of us judge with completely wrong motivations as this text shows. And by the way, this isn't the exception. The exception is somebody who judges with with a pure and holy heart. That's the exception. All of us are in this. All I got to do is just say the 51, the 101, and I-17, and you all realize, okay, we all judge with impure motives. Amen? Well, we do it in other areas as well. We do it in the marketplace, we do it at home. The truth is we're not good at judging. We're just not. We self-righteously think that we are, but we aren't. Here you go, we judge so that we feel better about ourselves. We judge because it's easier and less messy than compassion. We judge because we are not self-aware. We judge because we want to be God. We may not say it out loud, but we do. We judge because we believe our judgments, our judgments, unlike everybody else's, are pure and unbiased. We believe that. Social science research has even researched that extensively and have proven it. Everybody thinks their judgments are pure and unbiased, but nobody else's are. That's just the way we are as human beings. Jesus is the one who received the pure, holy, and righteous judgment of God the Father on the cross so that you and I wouldn't have to. We don't have to be in charge of this kind of judging. We don't have to be in charge of this. We don't have to receive it even because of Jesus' work on the cross and the resurrection. Shouldn't that call us instead of judging to compassion? That's the point here. Chris Amaro, our pastor at West Mesa, said this, when I am most reactive and judgmental, I am most unaware of what is really going on within me. I resonated with that so much because I've watched Chris, and that is so true about him. <laughs> hmm. It's like he was sitting in, his, in my lap going, I know you, Frank. That's what it felt like. See, judging is, is rooted in an in, in inability to be self-aware. Compassion is an act of self-awareness. It's an, it's, it's an act of self-awareness of our own need for compassion. That's what it is. By the way, the etymology of the word compassion literally means together heart or together suffer. It's not that you're thinking about somebody else's suffering. It's not that you're thinking about somebody else's heart, which is a good thing to do. That's, um, that is empathy and that's good. We need to be empathetic, but compassion doesn't just think, it enters in. You're with, you're together in that situation. So here's how I'll end. Here are the characteristics of compassion, and this is why it's hard to do. Number one, it's slow. It takes a lot of time to be compassionate, compared especially to judging. Number two, it requires an understanding of context and backstory. We are so quick to judge when we have no idea what's really going on, right? And then we find out later, uh, ugh. There was something I didn't know about and didn't bother asking. I just moved right to judgment. And that becomes a problem. See, here you go. We need to look in such a way that we begin to understand instead of just glancing and judging, glancing and judging. uh, Compassion requires sacrifice. You're going to give something up to be compassionate. you have to enter another's space in order to be truly compassionate. We're not all that excited about that either. Compassion is up close, personal, and messy. And here you go, it calls for vulnerability on our part. And boy, do we hate vulnerability. And I know some of you right now, I know how you think, because I think the same way. Okay, you, you see those characteristics of compassion, you go, okay, but if I live my life that way, won't people take advantage of me? Here's the answer. Yes, some people will. And your point is, they thoroughly took advantage of Jesus. We're gonna be taken advantage of. I don't like it either, but that's part of the deal. Okay, Here are the characteristics of judging. It's distant, it's expeditious, it doesn't require critical thinking It's Monday morning quarterbacking. I hate to use sports metaphors in this congregation because we're not all that much about sports, but you get this one. Monday morning quarterbacking is the act of criticizing without ever entering the fray. It's, here you go, we love this. It's having an opinion but never being held responsible or accountable for the opinion. We love that. The person who sits and, and judges and criticizes but never risks anything. That's the Monday morning quarterback. Judging can be explained as loving, but is mostly self-exalting. And and judging is usually motivated by a desire for power and not humble mercy. So think of Jesus. Wasn't he up close, personal, and sacrificial for us? That's compassion. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth, and we thank you for this entire narrative being given to us, recorded for us, Um, God, help us to understand every bit of this story and why all of it is so important because it's really about us in so many different ways and about our need for your son, God. So help us with that. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.